The text for this morning's message is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 to 12. If you'd like to open your Bibles, 2 Corinthians 9, verses 6 to 12. The point is this. He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do as he has made up his mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to provide you with every blessing in abundance, so that you may always have enough of everything and may provide in abundance for every good work. As it is written, he scatters abroad, he gives to the poor his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your resources and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way for great generosity, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the rendering of this service not only supplies the wants of the saints, but also overflows in many thanksgivings to God. Richard Halverson is the Senate uh, chaplain, U.S. Senate chaplain, and he was speaking once, I believe, to a group of men, and he said something that made a lot of them unhappy and excited a lot of others. He said, Jesus Christ said more about money than about any other single thing. Because when it comes to a man's real nature, money is of first importance. Money is an exact index to a man's true character. All through scripture, there is an intimate correlation between the development of a man's character and how he handles money. Which I think is a very good paraphrase of what the choir sang, namely Matthew 6.21 which says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. What you do with your money is a measure, a barometer, signal of what you make of God. When your hand reaches out for money, it's saying something about the degree to which your hand reaches out for God. Jesus said, A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Your life is not your money. Your life is not your house. Your life is not what you have. Having doesn't make being. What is your life? Jesus said, this is eternal life, true life, that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Life is is knowing God and His Son, Jesus. Life is relationship with the living God. And it functions in its intensity almost in inverse proportion to the amount of money you sit on. Paul, alongside all the other things he did in his wonderful missionary life, taught the churches about giving and about how to handle money. He taught them about regular, systematic, proportionate giving toward three things to sustain the poor. Remember the time 
Paul met in council with Peter, James, and John, they were a little bit concerned, is this Johnny-come-lately called Paul a real apostle on a par with the others? And they had it out, and they came to the conclusion that he has his apostleship from the Lord, and Peter has his apostleship from the Lord. Paul will be the apostle to the Gentiles. Peter will be the apostle to the circumcision. And then they shook hands, it says, gave each other the right hand, and then Peter added, only do not neglect the poor. Which thing, Paul says in Galatians 1.10, which thing I was very eager to do. And therefore, all through his ministry, everywhere he went, he didn't just mobilize missionaries. He gathered money for the destitute. For example, in Romans 15, he says, at present, I am going to Jerusalem with aid for the saints. And what he meant was the destitute. There was a terrible crisis in Jerusalem. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contributions for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. And so one of the things he taught that money is all about as he planted churches was your money is about the people who don't have it. Your money is about the poor. And he gathered and he motivated and he mobilized giving for the poor. The second thing he taught the churches that their money was about was missions. For example... He said in 1 Corinthians 9, who plants a vineyard? Who plants a church? Who spreads the gospel? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? The Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. In other words, those who devote all their energies to planting churches, to spreading the vineyard, to crossing cultures, to preaching the gospel ought to be supported in that ministry. Third, he taught that money was to be used for the local ministry of the church. First Timothy 5.18, the scripture says you shall not muzzle an ox when it is treading out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. And the context is uh, those who equip the saints to do the work of the service, those who vocationally give their lives to make ministry happen and to fit the people of God for their various gifts and services are to be, they're like ox. It's not a very complimentary picture, but they're like oxen, and you're not supposed to mobile their mouth when they, they're supposed to be able to eat for doing the work that they do. That's the point. So three things, Paul says. Money is about sustaining the destitute and the poor. Money is about sending missionaries, and money is about supporting ministry in the church wherever it's planted. That's what money is about. And he went about right in line with Jesus, teaching people that the abundance of their possessions is not their life. Their life is what they treasure, and what they treasure is where their heart is, and the most important thing is that your heart be in God, and therefore what you do with your money is to show what God's values are. Paul and Jesus are right together in this teaching. Now, I want to show you a text that's not in the text that was just read. We'll come back to the one that was just read, but if you'd like to turn with me, to the place where I get this idea that Paul taught regular, systematic, proportionate giving. It's 1 Corinthians 16, so you're in 2 Corinthians if you had your Bible open. Just go back a few pages to the last chapter of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 16, I think it's a text we have not read in public worship in 11 years that I know of. I may 
My memory might be wrong, but I don't remember. And it's an important one in regard to the, the way we give as a church. It says, now concerning, this is the first verse of chapter 16, now concerning the contribution for the saints. So he's collecting again to sustain the poor. As I directed the churches of Galatia, so also you are to do. On the first day of, the, of every week, each of you is to put something aside, store it up as he may prosper so that the contributions need not be made when I come. Now, I want to point out several things here. Look at number one. This is not unique to the church in Corinth that he's writing to. He said, verse one, I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. So this is something he's saying to all the churches. Number two, weekly setting aside of money. Verse two, on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside. This is where I get the idea of regularity and system in our our giving, not sporadic or hit and miss or impulsive, but weekly setting aside of something. Third, notice it's the first day of the week. And this is really remarkable this early in Christian history, because many people would say that, you know, the, the emergence of the Lord's day, the first day of the week was something much later. Why the first day of the week? Well, back in Acts 20, verse 7, the Christians were already worshiping, gathering for worship on the first day of the week. The day that the Lord Jesus burst the bonds of death and declared himself Lord of Lords and King of Kings and shattered that great enemy. The way we should think about the Lord's day, in, in, in summary, I believe, is that the principle of one in seven is preserved into the New Testament, but the day is bumped forward because there was this powerful bumping of a new creation, as it were. In the old creation, God climaxed it on the seventh day, and as Jesus creates a, a new people, the climax is on the first day of the week. And so he, he declares, that's my day. If you want your worship to revolve around Jesus, do it on the first day of the week and make that your one in seven principle as you create a day holy to the Lord. So I think what Paul is doing here in saying, now look, weekly, take your money and take some of it as God has prospered you. That's where I get the idea of proportion as God has prospered you and set it aside on the first day, probably meaning let it be part of what makes the day holy. That makes sense. Let it be part of what makes this day special. Let that be part of what worship is on the first day of the week. Finally, fourth observation in this text. It doesn't say in this text that that money is to be brought to, to church on the first day of the week. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say it's not to be. I just don't want to read more in here than there is there. It doesn't say that it's to be collected in fall. In fact, he gives the impression that he's going to collect it when he gets there and there to be setting it aside so that when he gets there, there's no big deal. You know, there's no big hassle. It's all set aside. It's in a little bag or something. And uh, when he says, remember when I wrote to you uh, about the stuff? Well, just uh, bring that tonight and I'll take it with me with your representatives when I go. And that's all there you know, wasn't supposed to be any big deal because they were supposed to have done it week by week. Now, what that says to me, as far as we're concerned, is that 
most of us here know where the rubber meets the road as far as proportionate giving of our earnings. The rubber meets the road, not in this room on Sunday morning, but in the checkbook after the deposit is made. And that's at home, alone between you and God. If, if you are making the decision what to give in this room on Sunday morning, you're one of the people that I'm trying to change this morning. <laughs> you're one of the sporadic, impulsive, uh, non-systematic givers. And I praise God that you have that much grace. But this text is calling us as a church to regularity, pattern, system, proportionality. It's calling to a lot more, we'll see, but that much. But the rubber hits the road in that whole issue, not here, but at home, checkbook in hand, all the bills pile up on the desk. Here they are stacked up. Here's the things you want to buy. Here's what you have to pay. And maybe it comes into your mind. Hmm. Am I I supposed to write a check to the church and put it aside so that when I go the next time, I take it and just worship the Lord with it? So I think this text is very relevant to the way we make our decisions, even though it doesn't say make those decisions and pile it up at church. It says set it aside at home and when it's appropriate, put it towards the Lord's work. So Paul, I believe, is right in line with Jesus in saying that where your treasure is, your heart will be. Don't let your money belie your faith. Give to sustain the poor and send missionaries and support the ministries of the church and do it in a a regular, systematic, proportionate way as the Lord prospers. Now, let me just pause here and, and stress this a minute to you younger people. Many of you in this room here grew up in homes where this was not part of your experience at all. And I think if we just pause right here and be honest with each other, what we'll say is that it's, this is this is incredibly easier for those of us who grew up in Christian homes and we're, we're sent with our little penny sticking to our hands from the first time we could turn it over and scrape it off our sweat into the... It's just a lot easier for us who were taught to give one penny out of every dime and one dime out of every dollar and one dollar out of every ten from the time we could know what a dollar was. It's easier for us. I would guess that most of you in this room did not grow up in homes like that. Which means that we're at a a kind of juncture here in the service and maybe in your life where you have to say, yeah, that would have been nice. To grow up being taught that kind of discipline and regularity and risk-taking. But I didn't. Now you've got to ask, will I let that be an excuse for just going on in my hit-and-miss relationship to my money and God? Or will I be the beginning of a tradition? You know, where do, where do traditions like that start? Where did my mother and father learn to do that? Once upon a time, one of their ancestors, because I come from about eight generations of preachers, 
Once upon a time, one of their ancestors, way, way back, was sitting in a, in a congregation, not giving, n- never having learned any discipline or regularity. And somebody said something from 1 Corinthians 16, probably, and they said, hmm, I should, I should begin that. I'm going to do that. And eight generations was the fruit of that decision. You, you can be the beginning of a tradition in your life, in your family, for your children, in your grandchildren, in your great-grandchildren. And so I, I am really praying that what God will do is not let you feel too victimized by a home that didn't teach you any of this, but that you will become now the teacher, the beginning, the place in life where fanning out from you, whether through friends or family, another way of doing things happens because you have a mind and a will and a heart and a God and grace all over you to begin something biblical. I want to turn now for the last part of this message and just sort of inundate you with some promises that are exciting if you would do this. Promises that I hope will uh, increase the joy of you veterans who, on whom this church is so dependent for the grace of God in your life. And I want to increase the courage of you sporadic givers to join in the joy of regularity and system. So here are the promises. Now, now we're back to the text. First, Second uh, Corinthians chapter nine, starting at verse six. Promise number one has to do with God's irregular mathematics. He's a very strange mathematician. God does not do arithmetic the way the kids learn to do arithmetic here. So let me try to help you catch on to God's stunning arithmetic. I, I said this, and Noel wrote me a note. She said, now, a few weeks ago, you said God undergirds spelling. But now you say he shatters arithmetic. So I'm going to have to work on this, but I think it was well meant. Verse 6, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Now, that's exactly the opposite principle that most people act on. Most people say, I will have more if I give less. Because 10 minus 1... Is what? Nine. I'm not going to trick you. It's all right. (laughs) Ten. I will in a minute, but not yet. Ten minus one is nine. And ten minus zero is ten. And ten is more than nine. And so the less you subtract, the more you have. That's that's wisdom. It just lacks one thing. God. So when you're writing out the equation, you have to say 10 minus 1, parenthesis, God, close parenthesis, equals. And then there's, there's just a, who knows what you might put on the other side of the equals. If you say, now, wait a minute, how does that work? How can you, how can you get more by subtracting more? That's not reasonable. And and the answer is, how did Jesus walk on water? How did he take five loaves and two fish and feed 5,000 people? 
How did he rise from the dead? You see, God's power, I'll say it again, shatters human arithmetic. (laughs) It is an amazing thing. And if you just operate on the level of human calculation, you'll never be any kind of a giver. And you'll be the loser for it because God's truth is he who sows sparingly reaps sparingly. You subtract little, the amount that's left will get littler and littler. You subtract much and the amount left will get bigger and bigger. And if you say, how can that be in my circumstance? You don't know my circumstance. You're right. I don't. And if I knew it, I'd probably say, I have no idea how that's going to work. Any more than I could tell you how a man can walk on water or feed 5,000 with two fish. I don't know how God does it. But God is God. That's the whole issue. What I want to do this morning is just put God back in the account, in the equation. That's number one. His mathematics are very unlike ours. Number two, he loves you to be happy in your giving. Verse seven, each one must do as he has made up his mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now, I love verse seven. I love verse seven. Let me tell you why I love verse seven, because when my melancholy moments allow me to invent a universe where God is not like this, I shudder. What if God, let's just imagine God being like a father who instead of loving the happiness of his children's giving, was irritated by it. Mm. Picture, Picture Christmas morning. A little boy in a pottery class at school has made some praying hands, modeled on his own hands. Look like this. And he's inscribed at the bottom a little poem for his mother that goes like this. I made these hands the size of mine and make a promise to, would you please take them as a sign that I will pray for you? And he wraps it up. He wraps up these hands and puts them under the tree and he's... Everybody, we're going around. This is the way we do it anyway. We're going around to take turns opening gifts. And he's bouncing on the sofa like this. Open this one next, mommy. Open mine next. Open mine next. And suppose his father says, would you shut up? She'll get to it in a minute. Or worse, suppose he said, they're just a bunch of dumb praying hands. Would you just be quiet? If God were like that, my universe would collapse into a black hole. My whole life would be over. You see why I love verse 7? Verse 7 says, God loves it when we bounce on the couch. Open mine next. Let me be the next one who gives. God is on the edge of his throne in heaven. He's on the edge of his throne watching Christmas morning or Sunday morning 
watching and desiring to see and to savor every act of giving, every act of receiving in joy. He loves your joy. He loves your happiness. God is thrilled and bubbling over with the joy of his people. If he weren't that kind of God, I don't know where I would turn. It's a great verse. God enjoys your enjoyment of generosity. God engages all his omnipotence to be a happy God, and therefore he will have a generous people who are happy in their giving. And so if you want to tap into an infinite source of divine power, namely God's love of being happy in you, be a cheerful giver. Number three, God's power and grace combine to give cheerful givers enough for themselves and abundance for others. Enough for themselves and abundance for others. Look at verse 8. Here's a literal translation. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that by having all sufficiency, always in every way, you might abound for every good work. Now, let's just simplify that long, complex sentence down. It's real simple. God gives you enough for yourself and an abundance for others. Good works. This is an amazing text. Just think about this text. What this text says is you have more than you need, almost certainly. Why do you have more than you need in America? We're all rich in this room. Even if you don't have a job right now, if you've got clothes on your back and food in your stomach, you're rich. Compared to the world, three-fourths of it. Why does God give us more than we need? This verse answers it in no uncertain terms. In order that there might be an abundance for every good work. Enough for you, abundance for the good work. This verse is a clear, it's probably the clearest sentence in all the Bible for the meaning of wealth. If I were to write a book called The Meaning of Wealth or The Christian Meaning of Wealth, this would be my text. Verse 8. And the meaning of wealth would be wealth is the God sent possibility of multiplying your joy through good works. That's what wealth is. Wealth is the God-sent possibility of multiplying your joy through providing in abundance for every good work. If I understand this text, there is no good work to which God calls the Christian church for which there is no provision in the Christian church. It's only a matter of letting it go. The wealth in American evangelicalism is stunning. And is all that's needed in order to finish the Great Commission and get every people group penetrated by the gospel in the next eight years. It can be done. This verse is very plain, I believe, that we are to have enough. I'm not telling you you're to die or not have clothes or not have a house or not educate your children. There is to be enough. But what is more than enough is not meant for you. It is meant for your joy in giving to the good works that need to be done. Number four, compassionate giving confirms our eternal righteousness. Verse nine, compassionate giving confirms our eternal righteousness. As it is written, he scatters abroad, he gives to the poor his righteousness 
endures forever. Now, I, I read that verse for decades thinking that it referred to God. It doesn't. When you go back and look at Psalm 112, verse 9, from which it's a quote, it's clearly a, a man of faith who's generous. He's scattering, he's giving to the poor, and his righteousness is enduring forever. So what's the meaning here? I think you can see the meaning if you notice the connecting word between verse 8 and verse uh, 9. The word as, as it is written. Verse 8 said that God makes us abound for every good work. So he'll keep on making you abound for every good work as, and then he quotes this sentence. There is, there's a kind of person who scatters, gives to the poor, and his righteousness goes on and on and on forever. Just as, verse 8 says, God provides us for every good work, forever and ever. See the connection? God will never stop pouring benefit into those who are scattering. That's the connection. If you're a scatterer, and a giver to the poor, if your life is one of conduit rather than cul-de-sac, it'll never stop. Your righteousness, your righteous deeds, your generosity, your goodness will go on and on and on and on if you don't cork it. God will never stop flowing in unless you stop flowing out. He will always be there for you. You will never be able to outgive God. The spigot will never release more than is coming in back here through the Holy Spirit. That's the point there of that little word as, I believe. As the scripture says, those who are scattering will endure in their righteous deeds because verse 8 says he'll go right on providing them in abundance for every good work. Finally, number five, verses 10 to 11 it will all result in the glory of God or in thanking God. Let's read these verses. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your resources. There's verse 8 all over again. He will keep on supplying, you see, what you need in order to keep on sowing and scattering, just like verses 8 and 9 say. You will be enriched in every way. Here's the meaning of wealth again. Why? Why are you going to be enriched? You will be enriched in every way for great generosity. If you cut off the purpose for which the enriching is coming, don't be surprised if the enriching stops coming. It's like the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts, sins, as we forgive. Forgiveness is a channel. It's a community project. It flows into you to flow out from you. If you say to God, I love my forgiveness, but I'm not about to forgive anybody. It's over. It's over. Same thing with this whole text. God is ready to just flow and pour and bless. But if you say, mm -mm, none of this weekly, regular, systematic, proportionate giving to the poor, to missionaries. That's just, I can't afford it. I'm not going to be involved in it. Don't count on it. It's a way to ruin your life. God wants you happy in giving. And he provides in abundance for every good work. 
My prayer is that God will take these five promises now this morning and make you courageous. I pray that families will get together, husbands and wives. I was so encouraged. I had one young woman walk out at the end of the service, and she said, this is so exciting this morning because just uh, last week we sat down and we made a decision that we were going to be more regular as a family. And so uh, I wrote a check. She said, uh, Bethlehem Organ Fund Span 3. And I put them in my purse, she said. And I can't tell you the joy that has been in my life this week. So I encourage you to join the joy of the regulars and the proportionate. The Lord knows what you should give, and he'll show you as you seek his face. Let's pray. As we close, remember now that we, we, we have prayer teams that are going to be all over this congregation. They're going to be in each of the four corners of the congregation and one, I believe, here in the front. And it may be that there's some real financial stress in your life and God is calling you to just ask for prayer for it. And he'll break through that, give you the job you need maybe or break through some terrible debt that you're in or some confusion over the finances, some disagreement in the family or it may not even relate to money and you just have a burden that you'd like prayer for. I invite you to to stay for a few minutes with the teams. Father, would you prosper this effort to unfold your word and make our church ready and able not to do what we're not called to do, but to do the appointed good works for which you are providing in abundance. Release, I pray, that in 1992 so that there can be expansion in ministry to the poor, ministry through missions, and ministry to the body. In Jesus' name I pray. And all the people said, Amen.